Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. But we've been kind of conned by the Europeans into believing that if it's not written down, it didn't happen. But all of our stories are told orally or through song and dance or through cloth. Welcome, 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 Nat. Do you mind me calling you Nat? No, that's fine. So, Nat, have you heard any of Stories That Stick podcasts just out of interest? I'll be honest and say I hadn't heard of it before, but I'm not a big podcast listener. I mean, I listen to mostly like crime podcasts. Okay. <laughs> well, the only reason I do often ask my guests this is because the very first question out the gate might potentially shock them. What is it mm-hmm. you want people to know you for? What's the legacy you want to leave behind? Do you want to leave a legacy behind? Um, I think that I, I, I actually don't think about the legacy, like my legacy, in the way that I want the world to remember me for this. But I think about what I will have given my children about me, about themselves, about their people, so to speak. Hmm. Speaking of stories, and this is stories that stick, let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into yours. Okay. And by that, we normally go into the first chapter, zero to ten. Natalie, take us back. (laughs) Who was little Natalie at the time? What was growing up like? You know, paint these pictures for us. Okay, so I guess when I think about little Natalie, um, I have two sisters, so I'm a middle child. So I think about the games that we played and the things that we did. I think about hall parties. (laughs) Yes. Because we we were constantly going to hall parties. And so my my dad came here from Ghana as a dancer and drummer. So a lot of my memories are centered around my dad teaching us things. And then something that kind of flashed into my mind was that my mum was always present. So my mum took on jobs that meant she could stay at home while my dad traveled. So he was in a band at one point. Like my dad was like the creative. Yeah. Your dual heritage, are you? Yes. As we've just spoke about your dad and your mother is? British. How was that like? It. I mean, for me, I feel like, I myself and my sisters have been really fortunate in that our parents were able to find like a really good blend for us. What does that mean? Um, I guess I say that because I know that some people, when they consider people of mixed heritage, there's a lot of conversation around us being confused culturally or not knowing who we are and everything like that. And when I think about my childhood, I think about eating both kinds of foods and us experiencing both sides of our family regularly and us understanding that we're British but not British and like all of these different things Mm. that made us who we are now feels quite balanced for me. Okay. You know, we experienced things like racism because we had white family that wasn't from London, but I feel like the way that our parents handled those things was in a really balanced way. I don't know. No, no, I hear that, but let's actually sort of... um speak more on that if you don't mind so here we are little Nat whilst you were outside of your home Mm -hmm. the very fact that visibly you know you've someone who's got melanin within your skin you probably received unfortunately some ignorance yeah if we are going to put it politely and going back then within the four walls so you're now within your house speaking to your mum and dad what are those conversations how are you navigating how are you 
I guess for lack of a better word, protecting yourself so you don't feel yeah. less than or unworthy. I think one of the things that my parents really tried to do for us was to always hear us. So like these questions and these conversations were something that we were always able to have. Mm. And I think that our parents made sure that they raised us to understand ourselves and our, our value and as individual people. And so it meant that um, something that might have happened outside of our homes didn't reflect on how we felt about ourselves. But also I understand that those things are wrapped up in the fact that number one, I was raised by a white woman mm. and there's a certain amount of, I guess, privilege connected to that. And then also the fact that I am mixed, which also has another layer of privilege. Did you know that in that decade, zero to 10? Um, I think maybe I didn't understand it as privilege, but I did, I did see that. Um, you were being treated with preference. Yeah, yeah, in some settings that we would be treated differently, both good and bad, if you know what I mean. I didn't, I definitely didn't understand what it meant to have a white mum in that sense. Right. But also people couldn't always place us because we're mixed. We can sometimes be ambiguous. Yeah. And so some of our racism that we were targeted with was people thinking that we were Indian, maybe, and calling us the P word as opposed to the N word or stuff like that. Mm, yeah. But I just want to really make sure I've got the picture correct. Mm -hmm. So little Nat, yeah. she's the middle of three. Three girls. Three girls at that. Yeah. What's the, is there middle child syndrome? Is there such a thing? Um, Maybe. Um, I don't know that it was like a thing that I felt like, oh, you lot are mean because I'm the middle child. But I remember like my little sister was obviously the favourite. You know, she was the baby. So my dad really babied her. Like I remember definitely getting in trouble for things that she'd done. <laughs> and I remember like that my dad used to do this thing with her where she would give him 20p and he would give her a pound. Really? As an exchange. And we'd, I'd never get that pound <laughs> for my 20p. <laughs> Um, and my older sister, she's like the blueprint kind of like she's degree masters. So she was always like quite quiet and quite well behaved. I'm also taller than everybody else in my family. Really? So I always remember. Yeah. I mean, taller than my dad. Taller than my. I wasn't. Uh, it took a while, obviously, for me to get to that. But I was always like felt like the giant out of all of them. I can only speak on West African, but specifically Nigerian and Yoruba context. Yeah, yeah. Like discipline is getting flogged, caned and, you know, you raise your hands in a corner. But how mm -hmm. is discipline like? So I guess my mum meted out most of the punishments that we received because she was the one that was mostly present. And she definitely isn't what people assume white people are when it comes <laughs> to discipline. <laughs> speak on that. <laughs> I definitely have many memories of proper hardcore beatings from my mum. Yeah. <laughs> I actually also remember like we were, so we slept on bunk beds at one point when we were all in the same room. Mm. And so we kind of knew, you know, when it was about to happen. And so we would run upstairs and we'd hide under our blankets yeah. and like pad ourselves up <laughs> so that when she <laughs> came to beat us, <laughs> we had some extra padding. <laughs> and you know, in hindsight, as adults, you know she knew, but she thought maybe yeah. you're just being very uh, smart. So yeah, she allowed it. Okay, well, I do want to then go into our next chapter, which is 11 to 20. But it'll be remiss yep. of me not to ask you about what you submitted on the questionnaire. Yeah, yeah. Now, let me explain this to those who are coming to this podcast brand new. 
With all my guests, I tend to just give them a very, very brief questionnaire, which is literally three questions. And the questions are funnest stories you read or heard as a child, as a teenager, and as an adult. Now, Natalie, you wrote Mouth Open Story, Jump Out. Yeah. So it's a book. So I am, like, for as long as I can remember, I've always had, like, a weird maybe not weird but a fascination with scary stories and so there's this book by a lady called Grace Hallworth called Mouth Open Story Jump Out and it is basically a kid's book of ghost stories from the Caribbean okay and I remember that bit like I actually have a copy of it still amazing and I remember we read that in I don't know why they gave it to us in primary school feels extremely irresponsible (laughs) of the teachers but it was my favorite book as a kid like I loved hearing those ghost stories and trying to understand them and especially because they came from a, a culture that was completely separate from anything that I was a part of I love that and you're given to it in primary school and you say you've got a copy now do you or I did do. you read it to your children no my son so my son is six mm. and my daughter is going to be two in a few weeks actually oh. and so no no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. So let's go into your next chapter, which is 11 to 20. Now, this is a huge decade, isn't it? Yeah. Puberty, yeah, yeah. education system, and, you know, becoming a full fledged quote unquote adult yep. at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Talk to me. Who was Natalie during this decade? Who was Natalie during this decade? This is obviously, I'm thinking like this is my secondary school type era. This is where I definitely started to find my voice a little bit more. Like I remember distinctly, I think it maybe was when I was about 12, which was when I was at school, that was year eight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I remember having a moment where I was just like, these teachers, they can't actually do anything to me. I remember (laughs) thinking that they can tell me off or make me sit outside the office, but that's it. So I remember going through, I wouldn't say, I don't think it was a rebellious streak. It it wasn't as far as a rebellious streak, but I I was kind of like a, and maybe I'm still the same. Like I'm going to do whatever I feel like I want to do. Yeah. I definitely like would go where I live. um, Wood Green Shopping Centre is not far from my school. And so we would definitely go there sometimes during... Um, well, you shouldn't have. <laughs> when we shouldn't have, yeah, exactly. So I remember that. But I also know that I, I've always read a lot and watching... This is actually where I started to maybe watch scary films. And I remember that I would sneak down a lot in the middle of the night. Really? To watch specifically. So we had... I remember it was a pink VHS... And it had Salem's Lot on it. Okay. <laughs> and that for me was like top tier horror. Like that was like the the scariest of the scary. <laughs> and I would constantly be sneaking downstairs to try and watch this film. <laughs> oh my God. I can't believe that. That's amazing. <laughs> At the middle of the night as well. On your yeah, own or yeah, did yeah. you rape your sisters into it as well? No, on my own. Wow. On my own. You, you, when you're trying to do covert <laughs> run-ins, you can't be... <laughs> inviting people along because they potentially will mess it up for you i heard that i heard that so i'm I'm getting a picture that you're starting to get somewhat rebellious i think everyone does when they start hitting their teen years and specifically you're still enjoying media as in reading but also watching a lot of content but the genre was still quite 
dark, so it seems. Here's a question, yes. though. Mm-hmm. Identity as a black woman. Do you first and foremost identify as a black woman? No. You don't? It's unfair for me to identify as a black woman because that ignores the privilege that I have as a mixed race person. I guess the way that I see it is, you know, we overall think that white people should be allies to us. And so I feel like I should definitely be allies to black people because of the way that people view me. Um, Yeah. Millennials have a bad rep. As if we didn't have enough on our plate, from adulting, buying property and navigating our careers, to having uncomfortable conversations about race, grief, and even mental health. These are just some of the things that don't get discussed enough in our community. But we've changed that. I'm Ade. And I'm Bonita, and we host the As Vice podcast, a safe space to discuss the things that don't get discussed enough. Join us every week to get your dose of practical tips, honest conversations, and we're big on giving people their flowers too. The Advice podcast, available on all major podcast platforms and via advice.com. Advice podcast. So the education system has the biggest impact on the trajectory of our lives. What were you yeah. thinking insofar as career? Were you thinking about careers? Were there anyone like saying, you know what, Nat, you really are gifted in X. Have you considered doing Y because of that? Uh, no. Oh, no, okay. definitely no. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember anyone. Um, let me just, okay. I remember my English teacher cared about us. Her name was Miss Alexis. She was the only black woman teacher that we had. She is the teacher that I remember the most for that reason. Like I remember some of the other teachers, but for different reasons. <laughs> but she was definitely strict. You know, like your parents, when they're strict, you know they love you. Yeah. Tough love. Yeah. And so maybe that's kind of reaffirmed my, the way that I felt about stories and English and reading and, you know, like all of that. But I don't know if it was like a deliberate, oh, you're gifted in this, you should do this. Mm. I think it was more that it maybe just serendipitous, you know, I enjoyed reading and I enjoyed stories. And then English was like one of my favorite lessons, English and history which I guess makes sense for where I am right now in terms of the kind of stories that I like to tell. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of secondary school, which is what late Mm -hmm. GCSEs, we have to choose, yeah, yeah, we choose specific subjects for A-levels to then think about university. Yeah. So you must have, well, I say you must have, and forgive me if that's me projecting, but because I did, we had to decide what subjects we considered for A-level. And they often was like a sort of career fair. Yeah. Sort of say, well, hey, if you do these sort of subjects, then you can end up becoming this as a profession. What were you mm. thinking around this time? I am. Um, <laughs> so I feel like at school, for those of us that didn't really know, we did something like health and social care or child care. Right. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no offense to anyone who does that. But no, but do you know what I mean? Like it was, those were the subjects that meant that you could have a career still while you're trying to figure out where you are. And I actually did childcare, so I'm a qualified nursery nurse. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Though I never worked in a nursery. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just went straight to an office job that I found quite near to my house. So you didn't go to uni, is that? I didn't. I didn't go to university. Ah, interesting. And what was that conversation like with your dad? Um, And I say dad because what I'm doing is putting a prejudice (laughs) in like a sort of... (laughs) Well, 
my mum was actually a nanny, so she couldn't tell me anything about studying to be a nursery nurse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my dad, it's really interesting. So I sang a lot when I was growing up, and I think my dad hoped I would sing as a career. And I don't actually remember him saying doctor, lawyer, solicitor. Oh, that's the same as a lawyer, isn't it? What are the options? Doctor, Rocket scientist, lawyer. brain surgeon, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Einstein second coming. Exactly. Um, but also the job that I took on was an office job that had some elements of accounting. This year is the first year that I've not had an accounting job. Okay. So while I've done been doing creative things, I've been working in finance because I've worked in it for a very long time and it pays really well. That 100%. So in this decade, then, mm-hmm. I can't see. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. Is there anything in this decade that you believe made a huge impact as to why you are a cultural producer? That's such um... a cheap question, by the way. I normally, I normally am able to extract <laughs> it quite uh, organically. Specific- but, okay. Yeah, but yeah. Because you throw me why... for a left with this finance and <laughs> I was like, uh, help. So, okay. So when I was uh, 12, mm. my best friend at the time, her sister invited me and her to church. And then I carried on going to church. So every year there would be a big event, like a social that happened at this place called the Advent Centre in Edgware Road. Mm. And you would sometimes have activities to do there. So one activity was to write a poem. And at that point, I realised that I was good at this, like I could actually write poems. And so after that event, a friend of mine invited me to an event. Like we're getting towards the end of this decade. And that was the first time that I performed. And then that kind of like pushed me towards the creative world. <laughs> Is that, that. Are, we, are we headed in the right direction now? <laughs> okay. So uh, chapter three, which is not your last chapter, because God, you've got so many oh, more yeah, chapters. No, not my last chapter. Of course. You know. And I'm actually about to head into my fourth chapter. <laughs> well, we don't need to put that in a podcast. This year. <laughs> no, so no, for I the mean, sake of... Um, you're you're totally fine. No, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And your black don't crack. My, uh, no, I say my beige don't age. Your beige because... don't age. I love that. <laughs> Is it fair to say, insofar as your profession and your label, you're cultural producer? Yeah, I think that's fair. Maybe and curator, so cultural producer and curator. Okay. Well, join those dots for us then. How have okay. we become that? Okay, so after the writing that poem, I carried on writing poems. And then I started performing. And then in a weird way, that performing kind of turned into organising which I didn't realise until maybe in the last few years meant that I was a producer. So I would help friends with their events or even if it was just like a family party, people would end up coming to me to organise it. Or if it was like a group holiday, like my sister's hen weekend, I organised it. Like all of those kind of like behind the scenes type things that make something happen Mm. I started to like fall into that and then obviously I met my partner Yomi throughout the course of our like friendship 
and courting, I guess you could say. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> he, <laughs> um, he, um, he launched an album, like a spoken word album called Volume in Silence. And I produced that event and kind of like oversaw the process of recording as like a first official foray into producing. And then, but all this was like still side hustle time. So I was still, you know, at that point doing like 40, 50 hour weeks, sometimes more in finance, like taking that really seriously as my career. And then we're going to fast forward quite a lot. Sure. I, so I fell pregnant. I was 33. And at the point of me falling pregnant, I was doing contract work and my contract was coming to an end. And so it meant that no one wanted to hire me. Now we had to make a new plan. So I had my son and then I didn't work. That was really hard, by the way, when you're used to having good money of your own and then you have to rely on someone else. Yeah, for sure. But then it made me think more about the stories that my son will have, like what I can tell him about himself, what I can tell him about his family and his heritage. But also, I will say that part of that drive came because I even said it to my dad, you know, if you don't teach our children or, or my son your language, you have to know that he'll become a Yoruba boy because the Nigerians <laughs> are going <laughs> to definitely make him a Nigerian child. <laughs> facts, facts. <laughs> and so after he uh, was maybe, I think it was about six months old, I started looking for places that I could volunteer at that point that would give him some kind of a grounding. So I, well, not a grounding, but see options and see stories and you know things like that and then I had applied to volunteer at the Black Cultural Archives and they told me that they weren't taking volunteers at the moment mm. but then I noticed that they had a job vacancy for a family from the same region in Ghana as my dad ah. who had discovered some documents that connected them to a king from the region and they wanted someone to project manage and curate an exhibition around that story. Now, the reason I say it's serendipitous is because so my community, we're called the um, the Ewe community, or some people say Ewe, but yeah. we like, we're 14% of the population of Ghana. So we're tiny. <laughs> and so the fact that there was a story that was going to be about the people that I come from just felt like I had to apply. Like I didn't, mm. I'd never curated an exhibition in my life, but I knew how to project manage and I'd never done any archival work, but I went for it anyway and then got the job. Yeah, wow. I spent time like reading through these documents and then it just kind of got weirder for me where I actually found a document within those documents that was signed by my great-grandfather. And so then I spoke to my dad about my great-grandfather and I discovered that he was a playwright, that um, I was able to go to Ghana and get some of his books. Amazing. And so many weird things happened throughout that process of me curating this exhibition. Like I, the great-grandfather of the story went to the same school as my great-grandfather and then they started their own school together. The father of the family went to that school and then my granddad, my great-granddad gave him a job afterwards. Like all of these weird things were just happening that made me start to feel like this is exactly where I'm meant to be. I asked for legacy for my son, right? And then I was given this. Yeah. This is now something that I can hand to him. Like I can show him this book and say, this was written by your great, great grandfather. I can tell him about the story of my journey. And it made me 
It just reminded me of the importance of us telling our own stories. I am almost certain that no one else from the community would have applied for that job. I'm pretty sure that there would have been lots of white people that applied for that job. Maybe someone from the Caribbean, possibly. But because of the area, so in Brixton, and the people that tend to know about the Black Cultural Archives, in my experience, not many African people or African British people know about that space. Yeah. When I was doing the research for the exhibition, I travelled to Ghana to see my family, but also to meet with a scholar that had been working really hard to retell the stories of the community from that community. So for my community in Ghana, most of the stories that we have are told by the Germans. Oh, really? Because of, when, yeah, when the Germans colonised, there was a mission there called the Bremen Mission, and they basically retold, they wrote our alphabet. They kind of like owned the way that our stories were told. Like for instance, in the exhibition, I made sure it was very clear that it's very rare to have hundreds of documents telling our story. But we've been kind of conned, I guess, by the Europeans into believing that if it's not written down, it didn't happen. But us as a people, all of our stories are told orally or through song and dance or through cloth. Mm. You know, from a Western gaze, we want to understand what this colour means, what that shape means, like all of those things. But when you speak to the community, the only thing that is important to the community are things like the way the cloth is woven. Sometimes there will be shapes and stories woven into that cloth so that you know the story of that person's life, but not the colour isn't necessarily the priority. So what we do is about feeling how the things that happen in your community make you feel. No, I'm with you 100%. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I see how it's so palpable and I can hear it through and I'm hoping the audience can also hear it through how passionate you are about ensuring that we continually tell our own stories and don't have yeah. it Eurocentric or bastardized for lack of a better term. What's next, Natalie? What is it that you're aiming and hoping that we know and potentially can help you with? What am I doing next? So this year I became London producer for Apples and Snake. My first project that I'm working on is actually a podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> it is centering around the stories of black British poets. So not just like a who they are and what they've done type podcast, but it will kind of sit around their experience of being black and British in poetry. So we'll cover things like publishing, the importance of owning and telling our own stories and the use of music in poetry. Well, look forward to that for sure. hundred percent. Natalie, the last question I tend to ask to conclude really with stories that stick is if there was one book that you can gift to loved ones, what book oh. would it be and why? Um, okay, so if I was to gift my loved ones a book, it would probably be Children of Blood and Bone by Tommy Adeyemi. Um, I love those kinds of books, like African sci-fi. There's something in them that speaks to the true spiritual nature of people from the continent. So they tell these fantastical stories that are really empowering, but don't alienate. You don't have to have lived a certain experience to be able to understand them. But if you have lived that experience, you'll understand them in a different way. Yeah, no, I hear that. I hear that. Well, Nat, how can we find you on a world wide web? And when we do, is anything you'd like us to do? I am on Instagram, Natalie Fiao. So it's spelled F-I-A-W-O-O. And my Twitter is Nat Fiao. That's the only two places that you'll find me. And what would you like us to do when we do find you? Um, just 
talk to me, I guess. Share stuff with me. I'm always trying to hear new stories or, you know, help to tell new stories. Yeah. Well, guys, as always, I will put everything that we have discussed in the show notes. And please also talk to us. You know, we're always trying to be better, better, better. And we can only be better with your feedback. So, Natalie, thanks very much for joining us for Stories That Stick. Guys, thanks for listening and stay tuned for another episode. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please do get in touch. Millennials have a bad rep. As if we didn't have enough on our plate, from adulting, buying property and navigating our careers, to having uncomfortable conversations about race, grief and even mental health. These are just some of the things that don't get discussed enough in our community. But we've changed that. I'm Ade. And I'm Bonita and we host the As Vice podcast, a safe space to discuss the things that don't get discussed enough. Join us every week to get your dose of practical tips, honest conversations and we're big on giving people their flowers too. The Advice Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms and via advice.com. Advice Podcast. Podcast.